in vain. Even We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The reading of God's word. You may be seated. for serving here so faithfully as an elder. Happy Easter. Um, Well, born in 1900, the young W.E. Sangster, William Sangster, sensed a call to ministry, again, relatively young, and in the 1920s made his way around to various smaller pulpits in England until in 1939 he was called to Westminster Central Hall, a large church right in the center of London. And as he got in the pulpit his very first time, 1939, he said, I very much regret to tell you the very first thing I'll say to the church is that England is now at war with Germany. And for those next six years that he would minister right in the center of the city very courageously, so much so that he had a red light on the inside of his pulpit that would flash bright if the blitz was coming. It meant everybody had to get down into the basement. And so he moved his family into the basement of Westminster Central Hall, and the church became a place of refuge for those years. And as Sangster would use his tall and athletic frame. In fact, he enjoyed boxing as a hobby, had a very rich voice that God would use this man to build his church, that the church grew, again, from hundreds to thousands, and Sangster had a significant ministry up into the 1950s. But as this strong man, as God was using him, something else was at play, and that is that he was, uh, he, he was diagnosed with muscular atrophy, that as the years went on into his 50s, that his body began to deteriorate. And the once athletic man was hunched over, didn't have the stamina, and that strong voice, you say, one thing a preacher is thankful for is his voice, that his voice began to fade. In 1958, he had to leave the ministry on that account. And all this to say, a few weeks before his death, on his last Easter morning, Sangster wrote this to his daughter. It's terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout, He is risen. But it would still be more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout, He is risen. So church, if you would, one more time, while we can be the church, those of us who can delight in this, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And may that frame all that we do in these next 25 minutes, that is, may those who surrendered to Christ, our followers of the Lord Jesus, be bold in our declaration that Jesus lives, that we have a personal relationship with him, and in that personal relationship, that all of life's affairs are filtered through that grid. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, and you have no inclination and no desire to say that he's risen, or flat out you don't believe it, I pray that you would read God's word with me, and that you would be open to the possibility of God's Holy Spirit coming into your life, that you might see the risen Jesus, to see him in his majesty, to see him as the most loftiest 
person who's the loftiest person who's ever lived and that he would become your Lord and Savior today. And so in our passage, we see that Paul uh, may be the clearest description, succinct description of what Christians mean by the gospel. You probably have maybe heard that word. It's both the written accounts, the biographies of Jesus's life, of which we have four. But the way some people toss around that word, it can be kind of say, what exactly do we mean? Is it, you know, doing the right kind of things? Is it uh, reading the right kinds of books? So what, what does it mean for a person to embrace the gospel? And here Paul unpacks it for us. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you, that is, the good news heralded by God's chosen instruments, the good proclamation heralded to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500, some of whom are still alive, and last of all, he'd say to me, Paul. So as we make our way, we'll see what is the significance of the gospel for the church. What is it? Why is it significant? Why is it our way forward? And why is it the hope of all mankind? So if you would, firstly notice, I hope you have your finger open there, but the gospel has defined content that's uh, centered on the Lord Jesus. That some people would say, um, you know, I think in more critical circles, I would get this a lot, say, well, we all know that the Jesus of history, the nice man, the nice Jewish man who was going around just trying to do nice things for people is a much different Jesus than the one who was invented by the church, really invented by that uh, not-so-nice guy, St. Paul. Uh, so you separate what they would call the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. But in our earliest witness, look at what Paul says. He says, actually, I just want to remind you, church, what I also received. It goes back older than the early 50s when this letter was written, but actually there's a deposit of faith well in place. It is the faith by which the church in Corinth was founded, which all the churches have been founded, that it's much earlier. It goes back to Jesus himself. And it constitutes the events uh, that we've been commemorating this weekend. And so Luther, uh, the reformer, I like the way he put this commenting on this section, we must also note here how St. Paul describes and defines his gospel, namely as a proclamation, that is good news, from which we learn that Christ died for our sin and that he rose again. Nothing is said of what I must do or not do to atone for or to overcome or to remove sin and to be justified before God, etc., but only what Christ did did to that end, namely that he died and rose again. See, Luther, I think, is putting this in a frame 1,500 years after St. Paul, guarding the church against the two, the, the two tendencies that, that we're, we're prone to. One is to, to add things, uh, to add certain works, uh, to add a little bit more of ourselves, to add some kind of new idea, new, newfangled, uh, you know, man-made knowledge that we, we don't add. It's about the completed work of Jesus. But we also dare not subtract. Well, see, there's a part of this that actually we do tend to subtract. So there's an early deposit of good news upon which the first churches were founded and upon all rightly constituted churches are founded, namely the gospel. Look again at verse 3. I think if we had to 
uh, pinpoint, uh, just to start for this, I deliver to you as a first importance what I, uh, what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. I think there's three, uh, three key lines there that we'll unpack. Firstly, that Christ died. Now, very few people have uh, really questioned that the man Jesus died. There have been a few really radical historians, particularly 150 years ago in the German schools of theology, said, well, can we advance the hypothesis, the, the, the hypothesis that maybe Jesus was just a mythical figure, that he never existed at all? And that never uh, took root. For as radical as uh, you know, secular scholarship can be, that no one denies, very few, honestly, would, would deny that the man Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. But Paul's smuggling in something else here. He's saying that Christ died. Say, what's Christ mean? Christ is Israel's anointed king. And when he says repeatedly in this passage, according to the scriptures, you say, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the entirety of what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which was written hundreds of years, parts of it, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. So what he's saying is, you know, you, we all know that we've had this long history of God speaking to people, and it's all been predicting his coming king into the world who would die and, and be raised to life again. That Christ is God's chosen instrument to reconcile the world, the long-predicted one. It's the same, uh, it's what we celebrate at Christmas, to put this crudely, that, that Christ died, if you say it that way, is really holding together Christmas and Good Friday. That why, why is it important that this man died? I say lots of men die, even lots of men die on a cross, but what's so significant about this particular man? Well, what's significant about this particular man is that he's the God-man that he's always existed with the Father, and 2,000 years in Bethlehem, God put him into history to walk around among us so there'd be no doubt that Christ died on a Roman cross beyond dispute, that he really did die. The second person of the Trinity came to exist among us as a, fully, uh, a full human, that he died on that cross. Now, crucially, three little words after that. For our sins. Can you see that? Christ died for our sins. What are the implications of that line? The one that hits me most obviously is that if Christ died for my sins, the diagnosis is that I'm a, I'm a sinful person. What does the Bible mean by that? What does God mean by that? What, what is the church always meant by that? It means that there's a moral economy. That the moral economy is not just social construction, right? Let's take this aisle. You guys make up your morality. Let's make up our morality. Your section make up your morality. You make up your morality. And we'll just compete to see kind of which, which person's morality wins out. Say, so, no, there's a real moral economy built into the universe by God himself and that I'm on the wrong side of that moral economy. And this is quite uncomfortable, really countercultural, but if we just pause a minute, say, allow this, you know, all the world say, you know, we're good people, we're, we're better than lots of people in the world. If you sideline that narrative and really ask yourself, say, look back at your own history and to say, you know, are there things that I've done that have been downright right, cruel and selfish? And have I been, you know, a perfect spouse or father or colleague or employee? And if you allow that narrative to come in, you say, you know what? God's diagnosis is correct. I'm aware of a, a moral law at play that I've not upheld it perfectly, even by my own standards. And if I go and meet 
a perfect heavenly father who made everything, including the morality in my own heart, then I'm in trouble. And what we want to say is if we say, well, I can make up for all the things that I've done in my past by doing good things now. You say, well, that sounds, but it doesn't make any sense. How, how does me holding the door for you after church make up for the fact that I have not been a perfect spouse this week? How does me having you over for a meal make up for the fact that I was very cruel to certain people back at certain points in my past? So there is a moral economy that I find myself on the wrong side of that moral economy and that I need help then from the outside. That to get back right, or as I would consider it right, to say it's not something in the system, it's nothing you, you all can do to make me right, nothing you all can do to take things off my record, or I can do to take things off your record. You say it's, it's got to come from outside this system. Gloriously, God put forth his son into history from the outside, the perfect son of God for our sins. Christ died. The God-man died for our sins and that God raised him bodily on the third day right that he was raised verse 4 that he was buried and he was raised. how do we know any of this is true is this just a preacher talking there's loads of preachers this morning and uh, you know over in Europe they're already done they've been preaching is it just pastors speaking words no because God raised his son from the dead and it's at the very base of what Christians have believed in all times and all places. Now you go to the first sermons in the history of the church in the book of Acts. There's four famous sermons by Peter there. Say there's one in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 10. Peter preaches four times. You know what he says? God put forth his son into history, that he was executed on account of cruel and evil acts, as a substitute for sinners, and God raised him bodily from the dead. There it is, the core of that gospel. It's in the creed. We said the creed today, the Apostles' Creed, hard to tra trace provenance of the creed before the fourth century, but let's just say very conservative estimate. Christians have been saying that for 1,700 years. What's there? Christ was crucified, died, buried, and raised on the third day. It's the core deposit of the gospel, and this is what it means to be a Christian to believe that we don't add what would we add again our own works our own efforts things that new ideas something like that What do we want to subtract? Well, we want to subtract the part about us being on the wrong side of God's moral account So we can't do that The gospel has clearly defined content. Here's the point the gospel in which the real church and this church will always stand has a clearly defined content that includes a Christocentric it is Jesus-centered the second person of the Trinity dying on the cross for our sins raised on the third day. Again, back to our illustration. We're holding together Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. All three of them go together. It's the God-man who died for us. He suffered on our behalf. Friday night, Pastor Ian, you should have been there. It was great. Today, how do we know it's true? God raised him bodily from the dead. Church doesn't add. Church doesn't subtract. Now, second bold heading there in your notes. Let's go back to verse 4. For I delivered this gospel to you, Paul saying, as of first importance. Can you see that? First importance. Friends, we live in a very confused world. Uh, people have very zany ideas about all kinds of things. 
Uh, we get confused as to what to put first and what's going to align our lives and we put the wrong thing first and kind of everything else is out of whack. Here you have, as plainly as could possibly be said, what is of first importance, and it is this gospel. Now, I'll go a step further and say, I think maybe, you know, you're here today, you don't believe in Jesus, you've not received him. You might admit, you say, well, I believe that this gospel, what you're on about, is of first importance for the church. You say, that's, you know, first important for the, fine, fine, keep it, keep it in house. Actually, I think that this first importance is of first importance for every single person who's ever lived. Of the eight billion or whatever we are now, what is of first importance is what God has done in Jesus. It is the first button on the shirt. If you get the first button on the shirt right, then all the other buttons tend to line up. But what happens is we're very confused, and it all turns to mush pretty quick. So what is, again, implications of this, very practical implications of this, that if what is of first importance in the life of any person, life of the church, not non-Christian, but what's of first importance is to understand God and what he's done in Jesus, implication number one. Again, countercultural, but in the root of our faith. The primary need in every human life is spiritual rather than physical. The primary need is the problem of the crookedness of the human heart rather than the cosmetic issue of politics or education or the economy or anything else. See, what we tend to do is we play the materialistic. So, well, we got all these problems. looking out. Nobody doubts that there are problems. We kind of, you know, address the issue without looking at the, the symptom. And the symptom is, is that I come in to this world as a rebel against God and at enmity, that is not all that endeared to any of you or my neighbor. And God is to break into our lives to give us new hearts to be receptive to what he's done in Jesus. And out of that primary spiritual need flows everything else like kindness and anything good that the church might possibly do. This reminded me of a quote popped into my mind this week by the literary critic Irving Babbitt who died about you know, 100 years ago or so, 90 years ago. And uh, a thoughtful man, he said this, when studied with any degree of thoroughness, the economic problem will be found to run into a political problem, and the political problem into a philosophical problem, and the philosophical problem itself to be an almost indissolubly bound, to be almost indissolubly bound up at last with the religious problem. What Babbitt's saying is, look, we got a cultural problem and a political problem, an economic problem, we got an educational problem, we got a family problem, we got all these problems, and at root, it's a theological problem, which at root is a Jesus problem because we've not come to grips with what God has done, reconciling sinners to himself through that cross. The gospel is of first importance because our primary need, wherever you're at today, I agree that there, there, are, there are real physical problems, but the primary need in each one of our lives is that God would break in, that he would take off our blinkers, our blinders, and say, look at what he's done in Jesus. And as we surrender to Jesus and receive Jesus, that he shapes our life. And that's point number two, or implication two of, of first importance, is that the church receives. You see, back in 15 and verse 1, this gospel, the church receives. 
That is the proper posture of receiving a gift. As again, gospel is a good proclamation. It is God's gracious dealing. And what happens is when the church understands that it's not about us or what we can boast in or our efforts, but actually all of what God has done for us, is that we become his covenant community of those who've received grace. You ever talk to people, they're, they're not, uh, you know, you ask them what they, they're not, not Christians, and you ask them what they think of the church. Sometimes they'll say, well, you, you know, now they'll say, well, the people in the church are the good people, and I'm a bad person, and I can't come to the church. Uh, I'm on the, I could never come to your church, Pastor Shaw, because you don't understand the kinds of things that I've done, and I know all of you are good people, but we out here, you know, not say no. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us have gone our own way, Isaiah 53. It's rather that the church are those who have understood what God has done in Jesus and have been recipients. We've received what he's done in grace. And out of that, hopefully, flows a kind of community that is the family of the local church, the family of providence, that can exercise degrees of graciousness and forgiveness and kindness to one another that the very activity of the church, if you will, the contours of what it means to be a church are set by the dying and rising of Jesus, that the pains in the church, you might say, all the disappointments in the church, you hand it over to the cross, right? If you're a Christian, you hand that over to the cross and allow God to raise it up to life again, that it shapes who we are as individuals and corporately. The gospel is of first importance. It shapes our lives. On that point, you know, I... I, I, at points in my life, I felt I could have been a prime candidate to keep the Jesus stuff just on Sunday mornings for one hour. Um, I'm going to be a, an acceptable gentleman to the world out there, and we'll keep the Jesus stuff in here. And the problem with that, that I ran into very quickly, is that if the gospel, which we just outlined, is true, it cannot be of marginal significance. You see, it, to me, it's an illogical... You, you can say all this is hooey, in which case, there, you know, it means, it means nothing to me, and, and you know, I'm just, I, I just need to get the brunch. It means nothing to me. But what's illogical to me is to say, I think Jesus was the God-man, that he died on the cross for my sins, that God raised him from the dead, but he's only of marginal significance. See, if the narrative's true, which Christian believes it's true, then Jesus governs every area of our lives how I relate with my wife, how I relate as a father, how I relate to all of you as a churchman, as a colleague, whatever sphere I'm in, that I need more of Jesus and less of Austin. (laughs) All right, thirdly, crucially, verse one again, now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Those two little couple little words that the church stands on this truth and the church holds fast to this truth. Now, I'm not old enough. You know, all of us can only live in one era, even though a lot of people think I'm actually 90, uh, which I take, you know, I delight in that. It's my temperament. Um, he, here's the point. I, it, it's hard not to read and interact with a lot of people and say, we're not doing... We're not doing too well as a culture in terms of having a sound footing. I'll put it that way. That we, 
gravitate to all kinds of weird ideas that have major consequences, especially on young people. And you talk to me, and it's as if they're saying, I just want a firm place to stand. Are there any non-negotiable, some place I can really build my life? Are there things in place where I say, now this is for sure. Well, look at this old gospel. This truth of what God has done in Jesus is the place in which you stand and to what you must hold fast. And when we see the firm and completed work of Jesus, that it's finished, that it's finished on the cross, that God-man came, all those who put their faith in him, that it's a, no matter what comes our way, a bad economy, a change in job, a bad diagnosis, the worst possible thing we could think of in the western suburbs of Cleveland, whatever it might be, to say, wait a second, I stand firm, I'm holding fast to the non-negotiables of what God has done in Jesus. Now, some say, well, we, we, we've thrown this out, and we've done so at our own peril, and you need only look at the data of people a bit younger than I am. So why is the gospel of supreme importance? Because our major need is spiritual, not physical, that the church receives this, and on account of receiving it, we can be gracious and forgiving and be the community that God's called us to be, and that we all need a firm place to stand, and I pray that you see everything else, right, is what one hymn writer would call sinking sand, that only Jesus is the firm foundation. Thirdly, and I, there, are, there are probably three sermons in these sermon notes. Next year, three, ser three Easter sermons. No, you know, eight, nine, thirty. You got to stay all three next year. Anyway, I'll... Bold heading three. Wonderfully, I think, maybe surprisingly to you, that the Bible itself provides falsification criteria. I, I don't know how, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. If there are a couple lawyers here, you tell me if you do this, but it seems like here Paul's saying, all you would have to do is prove that Jesus didn't raise from the dead and you would eliminate every Christian. How many times in our passage does he say, you know, if, if we don't have the resurrection, then we believed in vain. Actually, I'm wasting my time. I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a phony uh, th that all of it is just a giant way. That's, look at verse 17, right? It's exactly what he said. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Uh, this is all a giant waste of time. And what's interesting about the falsification criteria is he creates what I would think to be like an incredibly low bar. <laughs> because the low bar is all you have to do is prove that this guy didn't raise bodily from the dead. Uh, a body... And he's so bold as to say, you know, there's 500 people that testify to this. And he, when he says, you know, they're still alive, many of them are still alive, what's the implication? Go talk to them or talk to me. It's a pretty low bar to falsify things. And do you ever think about how much easier it would be? I, I've thought of this too. How much easier it would have been for the apostles to claim spiritual resurrection. So, yeah, well, it's not that Jesus rose bodily, but rather, his spirit is with us. We kind of sense that he was still with us. We all saw him die on that cross, but we, we kind of sense that he's still around. No, in fact, there are deviant, uh, heretical pockets coming around saying precisely that, that Jesus was only raised spiritually, and the church is Adam saying, no, that is not, the, it has never been the claim of the church that Jesus raised in the spirit, but rather that he raised bodily, that he walked around and it's at the bedrock 
of our faith. I wish I had time to talk about the nature of proof. Uh, I will just say this, that the most important things, it depends. People say, well, I want proof. And you say, well, the most important things, to, it depends what you mean. I mean, how could I prove, my dear mother was at the first service, I said, how could I prove that my mother loves me? Uh, what would it take for me to convince all of you that my mother loves me? And yet I know that she does, and I hope all of you uh, could say, yes, I do know that my mother loves me. Those kinds of questions, you know, you're talking about historical records, but the witness of the church, you say, this is how people operate to say the preponderance of evidence at the base level of the faith without anybody being able to pr produce any kind of uh, criteria to the contrary. Much more to be said on that if you're interested in the kind of the historical evidence of the resurrection. Um, I'm glad to talk about that. So the Bible provides falsific falsification criteria. It's a pretty low bar. Nobody could do it. Church claims he raised bodily from the dead. Now, some implications from the church as we close. What difference does it make if you're in Christ? Wonderfully, that we know we can be forgiven and put right with God. Again, that God would raise Jesus from the grave shows us that it's not just words, but rather that it's really true and that we can be forgiven. I was struck by a headline, now a couple of years old. I tucked it away. This is from January of 2021. Caught my eye. You ready for this? Remorseful man returns statue's stolen sword after 40 years. This is produced in a local paper, published in a local paper in Westfield, Massachusetts. Guy says, well, 40 years ago in the 1980s, I was a young guy, I got really drunk, I went into the local town square, and I stole the sword off the statue of General William Shepard, a Revolutionary War hero. Takes the sword back to his house for 40 years, there it is in his basement. But every time he'd look at the sword, as the years went on, he didn't feel good on the inside. It was uh, convicting him, say, well, I knew what I did was wrong, and it just for 40 years, until he returns the sword and in the paper says this, I wanted this story printed to teach young people that what they do in their youth has consequences. Now, I raise this story only to say I have to think the great mass of humanity actually, if they're honest, would sense that they need to be forgiven for at least something. Say, how am I going to make up for what I did? For how I hurt my spouse? For what I said to my child? For the time that I've wasted, what chance do I have? Well, every chance in the Lord Jesus, who died for you, who forgave you, and whom God raised from the dead. The church stands knowing the outcome that we can be immovable, knowing that we're right with God because of the resurrection. Secondly, a second implication for the church is that we're not afraid of dying. It's quite sobering to think of the fact that on Easter of 2024, we're going to be a much different church, and part of the reason we're going to be a different church is because some of us will pass on. It's just a fact um, that some of us will be in glory. And if you're not a, a believer, I, I think death is a terrifying, it must be a terrifying thing. I mean, the fact that every person, like anthropologists will tell you, you know, great preponderance of people have thought of there's something after death that's kind of built into us. And you just say, well, I, I'm going to, like Hobbes, I know my body's going to decay, but I'll just take my chance with the great perhaps. I like the way a British politician, Michael Hasseltine, he's a deputy prime minister, high-ranking man, in an interview, a journalist was pressing him 
on his faith or what he believed. And he said this, I think I describe myself as a prepared to be convinced agnostic. The journalist says, what would it take? To the journalist's credit, what would it take? You say, okay, you're prepared to be convinced. You don't believe in God. What would it take? This is why Michael Heseltine got to be Lord Heseltine, because this is a great political line. You ready? What would it take? A more imminent approach of the central issues. Journalist, is that what you call death? Heseltine, that's what I am thinking of. That is a central issue. See, death is a central issue. You're going to take our chances, roll the dice, don't know. If only we had somebody who'd been there and come back, who could testify what it's like and how you get there. It's exactly what Jesus did. Christian, death is very sad. We said goodbye in the last 12 months. We said goodbye to a lot of people. I know you've said goodbye to a lot of people. The grief is very real. We grieve as a church. But if you are in Christ, you need not be afraid of death and that your parting from your loved one, if they are in Christ, is but temporary until you finish your assignment here. That the completed work of Jesus, that God vindicated him by raising him from the grave, means we of all people are not afraid especially of that great tyrant, death. If you're not a Christian, please think about that. Thirdly, we have reason, we Christians, we followers of Jesus, have reasons to be genuinely optimistic about the future. So you smile a little bit on that one because you're looking out, you're like, this isn't going so well. I think we're regressing. I was talking before the first service with someone about uh, life expectancy in Ohio. Yet we're going the wrong way on that one. We've got a lot of nice inventions, but... Um, What's going on? Think of that great line of the last, last line of Eugene O'Neill, dystopian poet, you know, the Iceman cometh. You say, that's death coming. By God, there's no hope. I'll never taste success. Life is too much for me. Sad ending. Not for the Christ follower. That for all those in Jesus, that he'll set all things right, that you'll be together at the great wedding feast with all those you've ever cared most about, I pray. Finally, again, here's where I'm talking about a sermon in itself, but just think of the implications of the human, on the human body of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. A huge topic today. Why don't Christians get on board with the mutilation of perfectly healthy organs? Because the body is important, because the body is sacred, because God engendered us, that Jesus is raised bodily as an engendered male. The body's important. This is the vehicle God has given me to minister and to love and to serve, that your body is sacred. So he's telling all these young girls, not even your body, not even your body's a non-negotiable. That's up for grabs. Do with it what you want. No wonder we have the problems we do. Instead of Christian narrative, God made your body. It's sacred to him. It's important that he's looking after you. He knows. See, we stand firm. There's a foundation, non-negotiables to build your life. Friend, I realize today more than other Sundays, you're here because somebody made you come, or, uh, you know, you're just kind of on the periphery. But I pray as you think about this incredible claim that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he died on the cross for your sins, and God validated this, gave Christians the victory, that maybe just today, Easter Sunday, that God's 
moved in your heart like it has many of us in the room, everybody who is a Christ follower at some point say this is, we heard this great news, we heard this gospel, and God did a work in our lives, that's what happened to us, then maybe for you today, you'd say yes to Jesus for the first time, that you would receive him, you would receive what he's done, you'd recognize that you're in rebellion against God, that you've <laughs> made a mess of things when given the opportunity to do so, and you can receive Jesus and be made right with God to join in the great fellowship of the saints, that you can mature in your faith, you can make roads into becoming a follower of Jesus. And today, I'm just going to, I don't do this often, but I'm going to pray a prayer. The prayer itself, that is just saying the prayer, doesn't make you a Christian, but the truths therein, as you believe them, as you would turn away from the world and your flesh and toward Jesus, that you too can be saved. So if you would all, and then Christian, I pray that you have prayed this at some point in your life, and may these truths never grow old. So I'll invite the team up.